Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, this is Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin, and welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. Hi, I'm Will Summer, a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, where I dig into all the darkest recesses of American extremism and extremely online militants. I'm currently working on a book about QAnon and its disastrous impact on our society. I'm also a senior political reporter at The Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. I've spent years covering the intersection of entertainment and politics, and in the post-Trump era, that seems like the only sensible way to cover politics in this beautiful, hideously stupid country of ours. On this podcast, we're going to take you on deeply reported plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, the grifters, and the influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. We're here to help you better understand how and why this is happening. And who in the halls of power are letting it happen? Along the way, we'll regularly bring on guests, including political pros, hard-nosed reporters, and some influential voices from Hollywood. So, Will, this is our first episode back coming off of the big historic Juneteenth long weekend. What did you do for your special Juneteenth weekend? Yeah, you know, I had some people over. It's uh, obviously a long weekend. Also close to my birthday. So it'd be nice to have. So you're you're trying to steal Juneteenth's thunder. <laughs> oh, great! Um, <laughs> is, is what you're saying here? Yeah, I mean, I think for our purposes, I think it's interesting because, like, for me, it's always kind of the the most fun parts of of this job are often when the rights, the talking points haven't quite been settled on yet. And there's kind of like a lot of like kind of chaos and people are trying to figure out what the reaction is supposed to be and quite what their their complaint is going to be. And so obviously the Juneteenth holiday passed so quickly through Congress that, that it was a little unsettled. And so I think we've seen the sort of a scramble to find something to gripe about, about a new federal holiday. And, you know, I'd be interested to see uh, what you've seen out there. Well, when this passed on Capitol Hill, I think there were a total of 14 House Republicans who voted against making Juneteenth a national holiday. And uh, like you were saying, even in that small collective of 14 House Republicans, the statements that they put out rationalizing why they wanted to expend any energy opposing this were scattered. There were Arizona's Paul Gosar, who is a favorite of this show, said, quote, I voted no because this proposed holiday does not bring us together. It tears us apart. I cannot support efforts that furthers racial divisions in this country. We have one Independence Day and applies equally to all people of all races. There were others who put out statements akin to this is basically smuggling a critical race theory via a holiday. There were others that extrapolated on, oh, this is too confusing. We already have one Independence Day. Let's not confuse the kids or the families or whatever. But when you moved into the online Twitter sphere and the MAGA sphere, 
that occupies that chunk of the right-wing internet, you saw a weird collective of pro-Trump partisans trying to give Trump credit for the holiday and saying that this never would have happened if it weren't for Donald Trump, including it in his stupid platinum plan that went absolutely nowhere. God, do you remember the, the platinum plan? No one the remembers plans. the platinum plan. They were talking about this like this was the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation. Nobody gives a shit about a stupid platinum plan <laughs> platinum that I don't know plan. would have given a tax credit to I like remember, five I got black so, businesses in this country. I got so into the platinum plan, like when it was getting announced, I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to be in the platinum plan? And I was just talking to like regular friends of mine and I was just like, so like, do you see this platinum plan thing? And they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, okay, so okay. explain to our listeners very off. quickly what the platinum plan was. Yeah, I mean, it was this, it was sort of this Trump plan for black America, basically. And it was like very hyped up and they got all the, the black conservatives there around it. And, but I mean, it, in practice, it didn't really amount to like it much did of anything. Nothing. It was a glorified press release. Like so much of Trump's initiatives targeted, particularly towards minority populations in the country. It was just like a press release, maybe a press conference. And that was it. The guy who kind of typified this Juneteenth, like just this turnaround in terms of also the sort of the thing we see with the vaccine, where it's like, thank God Trump got us the vaccine, but but also it's poison. Yes, exactly. So, you know, last year, Charlie Kirk, our beloved young conservative uh, icon. Our mentor. So this was last summer. And so he tweets, Senate Republicans are inducing legislation to make Juneteenth a holiday. Obama and Biden were in the White House for eight years. Why didn't they do it? So he's saying, like, this is good, right? Well, okay. So then cut to last week, Juneteenth passes. And then Charlie goes, Lincoln knew America's founding was July 4th. Juneteenth is an affront to the unity of July 4th. We now have two summer holidays, one of them based on race. Shame on the GOP for supporting this. This kind of like real quick turnaround on Charlie's part. Also, I would say we have more than two summer holidays. I mean, I think Memorial Day and Labor Day are famously in the summer, but there you go. Right. We have like 8,000 different holidays for the troops. It is funny, this idea that there can only be like one holiday. Each holiday reigns supreme in its season. Right. It's like slavery, guys. We've talked about that so much. Do we really need another holiday that has to do with emancipated people? And, And also back to your point, I'm looking at a One America News Network headline right now from a couple of days ago that says Biden takes credit for making Juneteenth a holiday despite President Trump's proposal in his platinum plan. (laughs) See, they're they're keeping the platinum plan dream alive. Right. (laughs) This is one of my favorite moments in these sort of minor to moderate right-wing freakouts and culture war panics when they absolutely have not settled on whether they hate, like, or tolerate something. It's just for the clicks at this point. Absolutely. So, Will, now that even though it's the end of June 2021, we're still in many ways living in the shadow of what happened on January 6th with the riot and all the anti-democratic crusade that follows and still persists to this day. When it comes to the legal woes for the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, keeps looking grimmer and grimmer for them. What have you been reporting on? What are you seeing? So the past couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of great reporting on the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, the Oath Keepers being a sort of quasi militia group, both of whom have had members charged in the riot out of Rolling Stone, USA Today had a thing and now the Wall Street Journal. The thing I'd say, if we just break this down first with the Proud Boys, because I think the Oath Keepers are kind of the zanier element here. So the Proud Boys, the big revelation in the Wall Street Journal story is that they're in such financial straits that they're printing Black Lives Matter shirts as a way to to raise funds secretly and they're treating this like a big like a big own on the left like hey, you're funding the proud boys right but i've seen these picture these shirts and they're pretty crummy looking i think at best they've made maybe 15 dollars I mean, this is not like they're selling like Livestrong. This is not like a sensation. Everyone has to have the Proud Boys Black Lives Matter shirt. They're also getting to this a bunch of years late. 
like the Black Lives Matter shirts have been in circulation for a long time from a bunch of different sources. And then they come out and like grab a red piece of crayon and write Black Lives Matter with a Z on it. And it's like, oh, this is this is going to fund our disastrous, calamitous, like <laughs> legal defense at this moment. <laughs> it's like a Shopify store or whatever it is. I mean, it's out there somewhere and they're getting just a handful of dollars every time, I imagine. The other thing I would say about the Proud Boys that came up is USA Today had an interview with some guys who had applied to be Proud Boys and then discovered that, surprise, the Proud Boys have a lot of racism going on. No. This guy said he was they were invited to these, quote, vetting chats where this doesn't sound like a fun bunch of guys. Quote, users swapped the most explicit pornography they could find, offering featuring people defecating. Ah, jeez. So there's that. And basically, this has been, and then there's a lot of racist stuff going on in there. And this has been described as sort of like, we see if like if you love free speech enough for for our lewd pooping pictures, and you know I mean this just it strikes me as kids you know it, like it's like who can yell the word penis louder. So anyways, these are the guys. Okay, Will, I'm as anti-racism as the next Asian American male in this country, but you don't need to kink shame the Proud Boys. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> no, you, you. that crosses my line. That's not what this <laughs> podcast is about. No, you're absolutely right. But yeah, so then that leads us to the Oath Keepers. And now, now, Swin, how familiar are you with the Oath Keepers? They are like a slightly more dignified version of the Proud Boys nowadays. They're kind of like, like, which is not saying Proud Boys, much. right? Like, they're yeah, kind of like yeah, you the, graduate, like, after they're shouting at the Gen Z Proud Boys to please get off my lawn. I mean, they're like literally like they're typically called like boomers, right? And so. I guess the basic thing about the Oath Keepers to understand is that they're often former cops and former military, and the idea is that they keep their oath to defend the Constitution, and so they, they're theoretically uh, ready to overthrow this tyrannical government. And the guy who runs the Oath Keepers is a guy named Stuart Rhodes, who's this guy, often wears a cowboy hat, he has an eye patch, and so he kind of looks, kind of poses, he hangs around with Alex Jones a lot, he kind of poses this like real kind of like militia bad boy. But I think the Wall Street Journal found out that mainly he just can't stop spending the Oath keepers money on just completely inane things so you know for example so this has become like a huge issue in the oath keepers and basically they have started to split up and fracture because he won't stop spending money okay so i should say these credit card records have not been directly tied to Stuart Rhodes. however all of these purchases are in the remote montana town where he lives and where seemingly no one else in the oath keepers lives so you can kind of figure that out on your own so among the purchases more than two hundred dollars at a lingerie and adult goods shop called Alley Cats. And you awesome. better believe Alley Cats is spelled K-A-T-Z. It's spelled uh, with a Z. I love it. <laughs> nearly $300 on phone games. What kind of phone games? Well, unfortunately, it doesn't specify whether so, it's like, maybe uh, Fruit Candy Ninja. Crush. Yeah, right. Like, But basically, what's going on here is that you know, you're telling people that America is on the verge of collapse, right? And you have to unite to save all of your uh, rights. And then meanwhile, he's like, oh, like, I got to get this combo. <laughs> you know, I got I to pay for this. And so for me, like, one of the funniest arcs happens. Well, so is he doing nice, something nice for his wife? Is that what's going on? Well, yeah, I don't know, obviously, what's going on with the lingerie. Although something else would suggest that if he does have a wife, uh, she might want to read the Wall Street Journal because... There's this storyline where Stewart's traveling with the gang, I believe, in Virginia. I think this would have been to the Richmond gun rights rally that was like supposed to be a real hot thing. But anyways, so Stewart, he's traveling with three guys, and he, and he buys – they're in Virginia – and he buys a dozen T-bone steaks – 
plus kettlebells. And this suggests to me <laughs> that Stewart has been watching like Joe Rogan or something, right? He's like going, he's doing like keto CrossFit. And so so they go to this gun rights thing. And then he says to the uh, this other Oath Keeper, he's like, let's go on Tinder dates and charge it to the Oath Keeper. <laughs> Which, you know, it's just a whole whole other vision on its own. Like you're an eligible young lady in Richmond. And you're like, you end up on a date with an Oath Keeper. If the alternative is them backing efforts to overthrow democracy in America for the sake of the racist game show host, Donald Trump, I think this is a much better use of their money. I would much rather have them doing this. Don't worry, Swain, he's also using the money to buy rifles. So So then when they leave Virginia, he leaves the kettlebells behind. I mean, I feel like that's the kind of just like comical waste. He's like, eh, you know, I got my workout and leave it in the hotel room. So anyway, so this has become like a, a very serious sticking point in the Oath Keepers. And so the good news is, I guess, that the Oath Keepers are, are facing all these travails. The bad news is that it seems like this is not necessarily turning members of the Oath Keepers off from uh, generally not liking the government and stirring up trouble. Okay, well, going back to the Proud Boys for a second, they're selling BLM t-shirts. What else are they trying to sell to make ends meet? Like, are they doing Antifa swag? Are they doing pro-Biden and Yas Queen Kamala Harris merch? Like, how <laughs> far are they going? That know? would be good. They, they need to be like, you know, in Fauci we trust, that kind of yeah. stuff. <laughs> Maybe some Hamilton merch. In, in the Heights merch at this point. <laughs> yes, the problem, is, the problem is for the Proud Boys is that basically – keep getting kicked off of payment processors. And so they had in online stores and they had sort of constructed their entire business around selling merchandise. And so they find themselves in a tough spot. And so they're constantly kind of moving around. They're like kind of fugitives on the internet. And so you know, additionally, in sort of more seriously, the, the Proud Boys are fracturing because their leader has been pretty, you know, conclusively proven to at least have in the past have been a federal informant. So that's kind of a guy maybe you don't want to have leading you and, and advising you on your tactics and your battle plans. So this is like a whole larger issue. You know, people are calling him, this guy's name is Enrique Tario. They're calling him Fedrique. <laughs> and so you're seeing like a larger, a larger split there that these guys can never stop snitching. All they do is like love Donald Trump and then snitch on each other in their spare time. That is all they do. <laughs> That's part of what makes this beat so appealing, right? Is that these guys are constantly either diming themselves out to the federal government or to me or whatever. And so it's funny you bring that up. I mean, another Capitol riot suspect, live streamer Baked Alaska, was just doing an interview. And, you know, you might expect with these guys to be like, you know, I'm standing strong, guys. I'm not going to snitch, right? And then he's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking about taking a guilty plea. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> At least the Contras in Nicaragua, like, ran cocaine to America to try to fund their efforts. The Proud Boys, for being this neo-fascist, like, really doofus kind of militia, can't even do something cool to try to fund their efforts. They're just selling t-shirts? Is that really it? As if they're outside of, like, a Rolling Stones concert? Yeah, right. I mean, they're they're like the guys who, like, uh, fund their trips with the Grateful Dead and selling merch. Right. Certainly the Proud Boys have been accused of being no strangers to cocaine, although that is on the consumer side, not the distributor side. Okay, so Swin, you've got some new reporting about quite how much Saturday Night Live drove former President Trump crazy and what he wanted to do about it. Uh, what was going on there? Okay, in early March 2019, and what I'm about to talk about kind of gets at the heart of how how much of an authoritarian nitwit, not just an authoritarian, but a really like prancing fancy boy Donald Trump has been about his attempts at authoritarianism in America. So in, I believe it was March 2019, Trump had clearly seen a rerun 
of Saturday Night Live on NBC. It wasn't even a new episode. It was like an old 2018 episode that they re-ran. Alec Baldwin, <laughs> like, pantomiming as Donald Trump made the real Donald Trump mad. So he started tweeting about how can this be legal? How can this be fair? Don't they have to uh, provide equal time? Seemingly referencing either the desiccated and done away with fairness doctrine or the still existing equal time rules that apply to TV and radio broadcasts when it comes to political candidates. So he tweeted asking, should the FCC look into this? And it was obviously stupid on its face. This is just some dumb thing that only this particular president could care about. And people kind of moved on. Now, what we found in our more recent reporting is that during this collection of weeks clustered in early 2019, Trump started going around and asking advisors and also lawyers about what could be done about not just Saturday Night Live, but Jimmy Kimmel and other elements of liberal late night TV when it comes to equal time rules, which do not apply to satire. We can get into this more later, but if our audience knows anything about equal time rules as they apply to American broadcasting, it does not apply to Saturday Night Fucking Live. So... Trump starts asking his lawyers and his advisors, is there anything the court system can do about this? Is there anything that the FCC can do about this? Is there anything, he's asked, most perplexingly to his lieutenants, is there anything the Justice Department can do about this? <laughs> For people who heard this, this was just another annoying thing that the Mad King president was kind of riffing on behind the scenes. So across the board, they had to tell him that what he's talking about isn't really a thing. There's nothing the federal government can do about it. And that this definitely, even if there were something that he could complain about when it comes to equal time restrictions, it absolutely would not apply to someone like Jimmy Kimmel or Alec Baldwin on SNL. So Trump asked one of the people we spoke to for this story who has a law degree, something to the effect of, well, is there something else that can be done about it? This source replied to the then president, we'll look into this. To this day, the person says they absolutely have not looked into this. This was yet another thing like bombing hurricanes or some other harebrained schemes that the then most powerful person on the face of the planet was trying to cook up and people would just hope he would lose interest and move on. And surely enough, Donald Trump did move on but not entirely. He never ended up getting the powers of the federal government to absolutely crush one of the late night shows on TV right now. But he still obsesses over SNL, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, what have you. We were talking to my pillow CEO and top Trump ally Mike Lindell earlier this month, and he recounted that one of the most recent phone calls he had with Donald Trump was Trump calling him specifically to congratulate him on going on Jimmy Kimmel Live and taking on Jimmy Kimmel and sticking it to the late night comic. So I think your reporting here offers us a glimpse into something that I think we'll hear more about, which is when we realized that the country was just like, like the role television played in just like running Trump's mind for several years. Now, look, do I think Alec Baldwin's Trump impression and ubiquity on that show requires federal intervention? Yes. But you know, it is disturbing <laughs> to hear the president weighing in on it. I do like the idea that Trump is getting like is continuing to be obsessed with late night TV, like that he he's maybe going to branch out. He's going to maybe get into like Jesus and Marrow or like this Zee show. And, you know, he's just going to be like, you know, they're, 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 they didn't give Fran Lebowitz a shot. This is just, I think, fascinating reporting. And were there other examples that you can think of? I, I feel like this is such a common thing of Trump saying, like, let's look into this. Then people are like, yeah, yeah, sure. You got it, boss. Well, there are almost too many to 
count in terms of things that former Trump officials like to say or occasionally brag that they quote unquote stopped him from doing in terms of his ideas that could have actually ended in serious disaster. There are a lot of funny examples. There are a lot of really dark ones, like one of them that we reported here at the Daily Beast about a year ago when post George Floyd killing protests and rioting was getting really bad and really contributing to all the other major crises that were going on in America that summer. Trump wanted to do a major show of force, like borderline send in the troops intervention by the feds in Chicago, just to show the gang leaders there and the Democratic politicians running the city who is boss. And this was something that he had to be repeatedly counseled on was unfeasible. It would backfire. It would not at all be productive. It would not stop violent street crime in Chicago. But this was just something that he'd been thinking about to some degree or another for years. But when the protests and rioting really got into full swing in summer 2020, he got it back in his head that, okay, this is the moment that I can show how much of a tough guy I am when the looting starts, the shooting starts. But because he doesn't have the ideological commitment that other wannabe strongmen in the world do have, he was easily moved on from it. I don't know. He probably saw another Jimmy Kimmel segment that upset him. (laughs) On this week's episode, we welcome Daily Beast alumnus, former librarian, and current senior NBC News reporter, Brandy Zadrozny. Over the past four years, Brandy has authored some of the most comprehensive and deeply reported investigations into how the vast conspiratorial online has infected so much of our mainstream national and local politics. However, if you're an avid Fox News reader and viewer, you might know her from the network's obsessive coverage of her, including a recent Fox article headlined NBC Report complaints about parents demanding transparency in fight against CRT. We will get into what CRT means in a moment. And unbeknownst to your average Tucker Carlson viewer, however, Brandy also used to work at Fox News as a researcher during the mid-Obama era. Brandy, welcome to Fever Dreams, and thank you for returning to the scene of your wanton betrayal of the Daily Beast family. How's it going? (laughs) Thanks, Sven. Thanks, Well, I'm really excited to be here. It feels like coming home. Absolutely. We're so excited to have you on. And we want to kick things off by talking about your recent coverage of critical race theory battlegrounds. This is something you co-authored with yet another Daily Beast alumnus named Ben Collins. And this has caused quite a stir recently. And we can get into that a little bit after you run through what your reporting actually says and means. This was headlined Critical race theory battle invades school boards with help from conservative groups. And you've reported that in towns nationwide, well-connected conservative activists and Fox News have ramped up the tensions in fights over race and equity in schools. Tell our listeners what you and Ben uncovered and how deep and high up this really goes. Yeah. So Ben Collins, my work husband, and Tyler Kincaid, actually, as well, another reporter, we all sort of huddled on this piece. And we were just, we often sort of report on moral panics, because that's often the language, the love language of the conservative right. And so this is something that's been popping up this, uh, in the last couple of months, this anti-CRT, critical race theory, moral panic. And so we've seen it in, what we've seen is we've seen local school boards having just turmoil in local school boards people sort of invading and and swarming what is normally a very mundane process about like approving budgets and a new curriculum and then highlighting the career of a librarian, like stuff like that. 
And but what what we see instead is really the culture war coming to school boards. And so we I watched about 100 hours of school board meetings and just to see like what people were talking. So is your brain like mush now? Now? Yeah. It's been much for a while, but no, I mean, it is really interesting because it, I think what we, what we saw at school boards is what we've been seeing at local health department meetings, right? And you guys know this is that what we see is it's sort of like this feedback loop where people stand up and they parrot talking points that they get from Daily Wire or Breitbart about CRT is Marxism or, you know, Tucker Carlson, and they say cultural Marxism and it's Nazism and, and they have all these isms, but no one's really talking about curriculum in the school. And that's because in almost every instance that we could find, critical race theory, which is this academic theory that or this academic movement or inquiry that looks at pervasive racism in legal uh, and other institutions, that's not being taught at the school level. Like that's not being taught to third graders. And so what you have is just this like spewing of misinformation at the local level, the targeting of school boards. I got in a lot of trouble for this, but the onerous use of FOIAs to sort of tie up school boards resources with providing these requests. And then people take what they get from the FOIA requests and say, see, this is evidence of CRT, even when that's not the case either, but it looks like a document. So it must be true. It's a lot of energy going into this local, these local fights that are really about nothing. And what we did was we sort of went backwards and said, okay, well, who is really behind this moral panic and this anger at the local level? And what we found was the usual and it's, you know, the Heritage Foundation, it's other previous school reform movements that 10 years ago were yelling about Common Core. Now they're yelling about CRT. It's just a repackaged moral panic. Yeah, it's got money and effort behind it because it's it's working. Yeah, I mean, Brandy, one thing I thought was very interesting about your reporting is, from my perspective as a sort of consumer of right-wing media, it appears that, that critical race theory is so widespread that these are kind of organic incidents that are happening. But I think what your reporting discovers is that there is sort of a system where any parent who's cranky at their school for various reasons can sort of be funneled up to something like Tucker Carlson or through these groups. I mean, if you could build out more, like what did you discover about the networks that are that are driving this? At the top, it's really two groups of stakeholders and it's the it's right-wing media, which uh, the tippy top of that is Tucker Carlson. And it's this uh, these networked and longstanding conservative groups who need the riled up base to sort of fuel their conservative movement. So what we found is that people are really cognizant of this network now and of the ways that they need to move through it to get themselves heard. You know, there was one parent in Maine that we profiled who was really unhappy with a letter that was sent from the superintendent after the murder of George Floyd that said, basically, you know, we denounce white supremacy and we will work as a community to make sure that it doesn't infect our town and our schools and and root it out. And it was something that a lot of people were thinking about after the murder of George Floyd. Certainly students were. So, but this was not unnoticed by a father um, in the district who was really angry and upset about that. And what he did was he found quickly a local turned national parent group that could support him. And from there, he really quickly got linked up with Tucker Carlson and Fox News producers and started using the threat of being on TV and a television spectacle to guess threaten would be the right word, the superintendent and the school board. And it worked because that, you know, he sent an email saying, if you don't agree to what I'm saying, I'm going to put, I'll be on the news. And then that night he was. And so it works really well. And then of course, there's the feedback loop where once you're profiled, as many of us know, on Tucker Carlson, it's just a flood of threats and harassment 
and enough to make, I would think, anybody who either volunteered as an unpaid school board member or as a very poorly paid school board member want to pick up and leave, which would, of course, make room for the next person, the next Patriot Party person to come in and and upend the school board. And that's sort of the point as well. So when these guys, whether heavy hitters at Fox News or these random cranks at school board meetings, pull out a document or a alleged piece of curriculum where they're saying, oh, this is evidence of Marxist CRT that's being taught to like my nine-year-old or whatever. Give us an example of what that actually looks like. Because yes, a lot of this is built on conspiratorial sand, but every once in a while they do pull out a sheet of paper that says something and they're alleging it's nefarious. What are the kind of things that they're actually flailing about? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things here that I, I think it really is important to talk about, so I'm glad you asked. But the first is... There have been efforts in the last year specifically, and of course in the last year, but also there have been efforts in sort of builds on this long effort towards diversity and equity in education. I'm a former teacher and I I can't tell you the number of times I've sat in a room where people give us like diversity training and that's called professional development. And often that includes diversity training. Now in the last year or so, because of the Black Lives Matter movement in part, school boards have really ramped this up. And I would say, not just in schools, but across the spectrum, across the industry, um, there are some diversity trainings that are a little bit, maybe a bridge too far. They may be a little bit offensive. They may be not led correctly. I don't know. So some of these have been captured on tape and it's sort of evidence that CRT has invaded the school systems or corporate business or whatever it is. The other thing is just an absolute misreading of curriculum. And that, I have a decent example from Washoe County, Nevada. Wait, Nevada, because I got screamed at for saying Nevada on television. People, people get so mad about that. Wow. And it's sort really of like, do. chill out, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm just going to call the state Missouri from now on. Okay, so. So Nevada, there's this school board and you had this long standing group called the Nevada Family Alliance that has worked for, you know, issues like keeping drag queen story hour keeping drag queen story hour out of the local libraries and just sort of, again, culture war stuff like that. And she, the leader of that group was told me that this was the opportunity she had been waiting for. So what she does is she files a bunch of FOIAs and those FOIAs are just basically like, well, what are the curriculum, the new pieces of curriculum? This isn't even like, like a social justice curriculum necessarily. This is just a every year, the regular curriculum that you use might have an addendum or add-ons and then the school board will vote on it. And so one of the examples is that there was a question for elementary school kids, young children about they would read an age appropriate book. And then some of the questions would be like, what do you think about rules? Why do we have rules? Are there ever bad rules? Are there ever rules that we shouldn't follow? Stuff that's like, I mean, you're not like making little Marxists. I don't know what they think, but that question was just debated endlessly, brought up by parents and non-parents in the district who said that that was somehow representative of the way that we wanted kids to question authority and hate America and hate their whiteness. And it just like the snowball just rolled down the hill. And it was like, wait, this is a fine age appropriate question. Where, where's this coming from? So you have like, I think fair criticism of some diversity training 
happening in schools and without. But then you have this sort of stuff, which just like sort of has jumped the shark so many times that it doesn't even look like what it is at all. Right. Where the person who's mad suddenly tells on themselves like hardcore when you have to ask yourself, okay, why did your brain immediately go to I'm attacking your whiteness? All I did was ask you what you wanted at the Arby's checkout counter <laughs> or something like that. Okay. The thing I, I think is interesting is, and you sort of poke at this in the piece, is how the what was originally shaping up to be like the COVID battles over schools as it became clear that schools were going to open, certainly ahead of the midterms in 2022, that suddenly CRT became the new thing. I mean, is that accurate? I mean, in terms of how the sort of the, the right wing messaging changed? Local activists told me exactly that, that they were taking advantage of an energized base that was actively looking at school boards. Now, again, this is where it gets really complicated. And, you know, the Internet is where nuance goes to die. So we don't get to actively talk about this that much. But there is an energized base at school boards throughout the country because a lot of areas mishandled the COVID situation, not necessarily because they're terrible people or they're bad leaders, but because there is so much unknown. So some schools in a district would be open and some would need, would require masks and the next neighborhood over that they were closed all year and on remote. And so you have like people looking at each other and looking around the country and being like, what's wrong with my school board? And that's, that's fair questions. And for what it's worth, you have some school boards using what I think is nuanced reporting like ours to sort of say, oh, look, every criticism of the school board is comes from a far right dark money machine. And that's not true either. I think you have some general fair questions that people parents are asking at school boards. The problem now is that those parents hardly ever get a chance to speak at these school board meetings because a lot of them, we found 50 different communities across the country, a lot of them are overrun now by hundreds of people who are either COVID deniers and anti-maskers or are these sort of Fox News fueled misinformed people that think that CRT is, you know, under their children's bed. So it's complicated. I think there's an interesting thing going on with the nationalization of politics. I mean, and just these local issues where, you know, in your story, you talk about this main uh, principal, I believe, who gets his letter, gets criticized for his George Floyd letter. And he's like, all right, whatever. It's like a local thing. And then suddenly he's this Fox News villain. Or you have the other guy in the story who is like placing rat traps around his political signs. I mean, this is like a guy who would be sort of a local crank or sort of confined to being like, hmm, like this guy has like a a guy ranting at a school board meeting. But because of this whole system and because it's politically advantageous, he becomes like an icon and he becomes grist for this mill. Yeah, 100%. And I think like Media Matters did this great piece too on like that highlighted for me just how quickly these central characters that are like the main characters of the day, how quickly they come and leave before anybody can even ask like, are you a local crank? Or are you a Republican? Are you like a Republican media star? Are you a fancy YouTuber? Before anybody can even ask, or even after someone has been like, that person is actually a Republican operative, like it's too late and we're on to the next character. So yeah, I think that's I think that's totally true. And that has been something recently where many of these quote unquote concerned parents just end up being revealed pretty shortly after as longtime Republican activists. Yeah, it's I'm just really I'm constantly so surprised. I'm this was why this beat is so terrible for me. I'm constantly shocked and surprised. And that for me was like, I mean, to have I think the Media Matters thing said 11 of the guests that were on Fox News as a concerned parent or a little league dad were really either Republican YouTube stars or worked for Turning Point 
USA or, or, you know, longstanding members of conservative think tanks. And it's just, it's just terrible. I don't know. It's just so unethical and so wrong. And they know what they're doing. And it really bothers me. Let's next bring on concerned parent Laura Trump to discuss what is going on with critical race theory in American schools. Can you imagine? I'm just a mom. I have three kids. Like, why? Why? I'm going to lead with that. Like, as a mom. Wait, wait a minute. Brandy, you have three kids, right? Yes, I do. You're a concerned parent. I'm a very concerned parent. Why don't you just put that in your Twitter bio from now on? You know what? I think that's the funny thing. I think that like that that is an interesting... People don't like me on the far right. I get that. But I also think that people don't know what to do with me sometimes because I am a mom of three kids. I am actually from the South. I actually grew up evangelical. Like I actually went to a state school. I've been a waitress and a bartender and a librarian. And like, I don't know. I feel I really, I like, and I worked at Fox News. Like I'm hard to sort of vilify too much. They'll they'll try. (laughs) Well, if you don't mind, let's get into that a little bit. Because I think for years, you have been a fixture in conservative media as a recurring character. And like in the top echelons of conservative media, not just Tucker Carlson's show, but certainly that has been a recurring element. Uh, For our listeners who don't regularly consume this kind of right-wing media, can you tell us a little bit more about that. How I'm hated. <laughs> yes, how, how much people fucking hate you and why. No, you see, I don't I don't know, maybe I haven't totally accepted it, but I, I think that I'm a nice person and I think I'm a, I don't know. I can say as a corroborating witness and a f- soon to be very concerned parent that Brandy Zadrozny is in fact one of the nicest people you'd ever meet. I mean, I think well, it's, this is a weird beat, right? And I think that y'all know, but I think that this beat is often is often ignored, right? It was it's not taken seriously sometimes when we think about the niche online communities that actually fuel a lot of conservative power. Um, but I I think that the Daily Beast, to its credit, has always taken that really seriously, and that more more institutions have followed suit uh, with disinformation beats, including the New York Times and NBC News and and some other places. And I think that people don't like their business being reported on. So, you know, whether that was early QAnon stuff or anti-vaccination movement, like these people aren't used to scrutiny and they are people of the internet. And so they will like go after you in ways that are very troll forward internet um, attacks. And I think like when I think about like the Tucker Carlson thing, when I was just lied about in this ridiculous way on his show, like that was in part because of basically this internet person who was run out of the Trump White House for having ties with white nationalists, Darren Beatty. And now he wrote this really stupid false article about me on his blog. And like suddenly he's on Tucker Carlson. So I just, I think the pipeline from bad faith internet to huge national television platform has just shortened where it's really not a pipeline anymore. It's just a text. And so that I think is why like someone like me who really shouldn't be in the public eye at all because I'm just a reporter, I'm just an internet reporter, has suddenly some sort of like boogeyman status within the right. 
I think that's a great insight, Brandy, in terms of how how short that pipeline is now. I mean, it used to be that you would have something like like let's say Seth Rich bubbling up on Reddit and 4chan, and then kind of going to the Gateway Pundit, and then maybe eventually making it to Fox News over the course of a year, perhaps six months. And now you have someone someone like Darren Beatty who seems to basically have a standing reservation on Tucker Carlson, so he can write something like maybe the FBI was involved in January sixth, and then that night he's on Tucker, and so it's really the getting to that megaphone is a lot quicker. Oh yeah, it's 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 so easy now. It's it's insane. I mean, it, not just. People targeting me, but just spreading misinformation generally. You know, the former New York Times reporter, like how how is he on television for anything? Oh, Mr. <laughs> Alex Berenson. No, it's like a, it's like a monster. You can't say his name. So he's now feuding with people further to the right than him on COVID because this is like a funny little arc. So he got an email from the the woman who runs America's Frontline Doctors, which is the group that was associated with the demon sperm doctor. And, you know, now the, the head of this group is facing charges for an alleged role in the insurrection. And so she emailed him and was sort of like, Alex, let's collab. Like, you know, it's like, I, I fuck with the vision, fam. Let's link and build. And he said, he posted her email and was like, uh... I think not. And so now all of the... Oh, that's his go-to move. He's like, oh, well, I'm I mean, it's pretty funny email, though that he's blowing cool this lady off as like too much of a nut for for the hallowed halls of Alex Berenson Institute. And so, so this like really offended a lot of <laughs> a lot of people. They were like, Alex, like this is not fresh, dude. Um, so, so yeah, it's just funny. To, I think to see where he draws the line. When we think about that feedback loop, I think, and I know that a lot of these people, once they get to the, once they have the the platform of Fox News, they just um, they get a little highfalutin and think that the mob that brought them there won't come back for them. And I have found that to be wrong on multiple occasions. Well, Brandy, something else I want to ask you about was over the years, including at thedailybeast.com, you did a lot of reporting on just how badly anti-vaccine sentiment and conspiracy theories had permeated, not just online, but in real life in American communities all over the country. And Since you spent so many years researching that and investigating that, how has that changed and how has it not changed when it is sort of morphed into anti-vax sentiment during the COVID era, with a large percentage of that, of course, being driven by the anti-vax hysteria on the right and driven by pro-Trump elements and Republican voters? That's a lot of questions, but I'm going to do my best. I, I think obviously like COVID widened the audience to be receptive to anti-vaccination propaganda and misinformation. So like before, when I used to report on the anti-vaccination movement, the only, the only audience for that is, is parents of small children or pregnant people, right? That's, that's not actually that many people. So, or, you know, parents with children with uh, disabilities or developmental disabilities that somehow want an explanation for that. So that's a pretty small world. But then you had COVID and it just opened it up to literally every person on the planet became a person that had questions about vaccines. And so what happened was the audience widened, but also anti-vaxxers had spent the last decade building audiences on these platforms, building pipelines for information to spread on these platforms, building a communication 
strategy, which is not often facts and figures and statistics, but it's often in like the stories of uh, people harmed from vaccines. And you just literally saw them take childhood vaccinations and replace it with COVID-19 vaccinations. And CDC is still the devil. Andrew Wakefield is still perfect and wonderful, even though he's a discredited doctor. You have the same heroes and villains, and it really was just exactly the same. I don't know. It's been it's been really funny to watch them. I <laughs> God bless him. God bless him indeed. Brandy, you've been great. Keep doing the reporting you've been doing and come back anytime. Thank you so much for crawling back on your hands and knees to the Daily Beast family. And um, <laughs> um I love you so much. I can't wait till you're a dad. Yeah, you'll get your Where's a braided chain made of finest silver from the north of Spain? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. And now, dear listener, we bring you to maybe our most treasured segment on the show, a one we like to call Fresh Hell, in which we introduce our listeners to something batshit that's happening in the world that almost seems too batshit to be happening, yet is happening anyway. Now, Will, let's dive into the rise of the so-called Barstool Republicans, something that I think you have been watching the rise of for at least a couple years now. What do you have to say about it? Often on Fresh Hell, we talk about sort of marginal phenomenons, whether they be compounds or sort of obscure right-wing movies. But this one, I, I think, is unfortunately one that is going to become kind of a dominant one in our discourse. Derek Robertson in Politico magazine a few days ago had a great story on the rise of the Barstool Republican. And of course, this refers to fans of Barstool Sports, those who support the, who salute the stool and stars. Basically, he he posits that Dave Portnoy, the so-called El Presidente of Barstool Sports, the kind of trash-talking id of the American male, that he will, there's kind of some speculation that he's going to run for president. I don't think that's going to happen. But that this kind of attitude, this kind of like thumb in your nose attitude is becoming a dominant one in the GOP. I don't think it's really one you can disagree with. Let me just kind of sum up what the Barstool Republican is, as Robertson writes here. The Barstool Republican now largely defines the Republican coalition because of his willingness to dispense with conventional policy wisdom on anything, social safety net, drug laws, or abortion access. 
as long as it means one thing. He doesn't have to vote for some snooty Democrat. I mean, we've seen Portnoy's rise in the GOP. He was briefly banned from Twitter a few days ago. And Ted Cruz was tweeting, free Dave Portnoy. So I think this offers an ominous development for those of us keeping track of the GOP, uh, but certainly one that has legs. Well, also with a Republican Party that is so, so, so obsessed with every idiotic culture war you can imagine, they're lacking in pop cultural heroes, of course. It's no mystery to anybody listening here why they have so few heroes in mainstream entertainment, Hollywood, major music stars. This is why they and Donald Trump went so crazy and apoplectic the moment Kanye West was like, oh yeah, I like Donald Trump and I'm I'm gonna vote for him. I'm not even sure if he did end up voting for him in the 2020 election. But anyway, Moving on from that. So when you look at a guy like David Portnoy, this is who they have. This is what a pop cultural hero looks like to a Trump era and post-Trump era Republican. You're not going to get a Bono. You're not going to get a Tom Hanks. All you have left is the Dave Portnoy's of the world and the internet. And what this reminds me a lot of was the Bush era so-called South Park Republican, which I think was a term that uh, columnist and blogger Andrew Sullivan coined at the time, if I'm remembering it correctly. Well, do you remember the South Park Republican? Did this come up when you were in high school? Did it make you as irritated? Yeah, I was a big time South Park Republican, man. Yeah, I love Trey and Matt and the whole gang. There was this idea that you had kind of this disaffected uh, white male who was going to power the GOP. Right. And the whole premise was at the time that if you watch South Park, there was this libertarian anti to or term you used earlier, snooty Democrat ethos to it, where was the show like explicitly pro-Bush or did it want to join the Faith and Freedom Coalition? No, absolutely not. But during the Bush era, the show took on a clearly libertarianish slant where conservative writers were kind of able to seize on it and say, ah, this hugely popular hip thing is ours now. Okay, okay, yeah, I mean, so look, is Dave Portnoy going to run for president in the future? Uh, probably not. But I do think, I mean, and, and I think you're right, Swin, to, to key in on the idea that that unlike a lot of people who who the right has, I mean, he is able to appeal to people, and particularly men, under 60. And so, the which is, you know, a relatively rare skill for that group. And so, but the other thing is that, like, like Trump, I think he has a way of keying in on the right culture war things to gripe about. Whereas even someone like Don Jr., who, of course, kind of tries a similar thing with a book like Triggered. It's like I watch some of this stuff. And, and of course, this is my job to track these people, right? And what understand what they're saying. And then suddenly they'll be talking about things that I think to the average person, they'll make reference to like smelly Walmart shoppers as like kind of like the new deplorables and stuff. And I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? Whereas I think Dave Portnoy it picks his battles in ways that at, le at least his audience will rally around him. He understands what will actually go viral. Right, exactly. In the same way that Trump did what the average person will be like, yeah, that's right. Like this guy, you know, you know, it's funny. You know, maybe I don't like his attitude, but, you know, he makes sense sometimes. I think in that way, it certainly seems to appeal. And, and I think we've seen that Barstool had this fund to raise money for small businesses. And that was really em embraced by Republicans as sort of like, it's crazy. Dave Portnoy is doing more for businesses than the government, which like was not true. But but it's sort of a line that you can say, right? As a it's thing. just setting the bar through the goddamn floor. It's like someone saw a video of Dave Portnoy putting like a dime 
in the cup of some homeless man, it's like, oh my God, like he does more for this country than the social safety net. What gives? Exactly. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think this Politico story uh, kind of keys in on a, on it, not only like a rising demographic within the GOP, but an attitude that unites all of it, in that you can, you don't have to focus on your differences about policy issues within the Republican. You can just tweak the libs or trigger the libs. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.